What would you say if I told you that right now uh, there was a guy filing a lawsuit because he wanted to save the Constitution uh, by destroying the Constitution before a group of people he claims are destroying the Constitution get the chance to do it? I'd say, come again? And then I'd laugh because I said, come. But thank God that's not the case, huh? Hey, greetings, everybody. Welcome back to Legalese. Uh, today, we are going to be talking about uh, a peculiar legal case that a man named Raylan Brunson has been fighting since about the beginning of 2001. Now, recently, several people have reached out to me to get my thoughts on this case, uh, and I'm glad that they did, because the more I look into this case, the more I'm finding new and interesting avenues and ideas that we can explore. And I think the ensuing discussion about this case will raise some serious questions about the Constitution, about civil procedure, pro se litigation, and about the function of federal courts in cases such as these. Now, I think it also necessarily confronts us with some of the most interesting and troubling developments in the ever-evolving and ceaselessly shifting landscape of values, beliefs, priorities, and principles that tend to constitute the modern liberal and conservative worldviews or at the very least some kind of abstract approximation of said worldviews. But this is all about how partisan political actors view themselves and how they view each other. And this case is a very good opportunity for me to discuss some important issues that I believe arise in how individuals, and especially individuals without any formal training in the practice of law, can understand and apply the law in a manner that will hopefully be both helpful and empowering for them. Now, the case that we're going to be discussing is a case that is known as Brunson v. Adams. Uh, though I have seen a lot of people, I think most people, referring to it as Docket 22-380 as though that's the name of the case. So that seems to be what most people know it by is Docket 22-380. The actual case is Brunson v. Adams. Now, the heart of this case has to do with the 2020 presidential election and more specifically, the allegations made by Donald Trump and his supporters that Biden and his supporters stole the election. So at this point, before we dive in, I think there are a, a few uh, caveats I need to briefly touch on. Uh, first of all, uh, when I speak of uh, helping people understand and apply the law, as I was talking about just a moment ago, I mean that as a matter of general education only. This is not legal advice. It should not be construed as legal advice. If you're looking for legal advice, find an attorney licensed to practice in your state. Secondly, while this video is about a case that challenges the outcome of the 2020 presidential election, I take no position either for or against the proposition that this election was in any way illegitimate. This video is discussing a case about the election as a matter of law. We are not discussing the election itself as a matter of fact. And this means that for the purposes of our discussion, it actually makes absolutely no difference what anyone else's personal opinion about the election controversy may be. But for, uh, first, before we get into all of that, uh, let me 
welcome you back to the show. Uh, this, of course, is the Legalese podcast. My name is Bob. I am the host. Uh, and this is a podcast where we're going to be discussing all things constitutional law, as well as other topics and current events in American law, politics, and culture. Now, the show comes on a number of different formats and platforms. You can find a video version available on YouTube, Rumble, and Odyssey. Uh, there's also an audio-only version that you can find on Anchor and Spotify. And if you go over to Substack, you can find an episode archive as well as a bunch of published articles and essays of mine uh, on topics of law and government, as well as uh, show notes pages where you can find links and citations for relevant legal documents, case briefs, and additional articles from other writers and reporters on topics that I have covered here on the show. And you can also, if you wish, uh, go and check out my new book, which is called Constitutional Sleight of Hand. Now, this book looks at the development of the Constitution's implied power doctrine in Anglo-American jurisprudence and brings to bear some of my own suggestions about how we can reclaim the proper meaning and scope of the implied powers doctrine based on an original understanding of the Constitution, uh, the original understanding specifically of those who gave the document legal force. So the book is available uh, either in ebook or paperback, uh, only on Amazon, and this book would be the perfect holiday gift to give to that special somebody in your life this February to celebrate everybody's favorite holiday that is all about love. Which is why if you order now, you can get it shipped with a guaranteed on-time delivery on or before February 25th, just in time, of course, for National Clam Chowder Day. And yes, that's really a thing. And uh, I just want to really quick uh, thank everyone who has brought this case uh, to my attention. And a number of people have asked me for my opinion uh, or possibly a video like this discussing the case. Uh, and I think there's, uh, I want to thank Patrick and James, who both uh, independently brought this to my attention back when the case was still before uh, the 10th Circuit. And then to uh, Mark, who brought this to my attention uh, following Brunson's first petition for cert. And then most recently, Sarah just recently drew my attention to this case again in regards to the petition for rehearing that the court will be taking up once again in a private conference on February 17th. Now, I have been coming to realize that this is actually an incredibly important case to cover in detail and that its message, I think, needs to be broadcast far and wide, but not for the reasons that I think this case's supporters would assume, and actually not for the reason that the people who are mocking this case would assume, and as a matter of fact, not even for the reasons that I first assumed when I began looking into this case. Now, I think people who have not been uh, paying attention to the wide swath of people you can find online and on social media who are expressing a positive view of this case uh, is a surprisingly large number. I think most people wouldn't really expect that. This is actually a very popular case among a lot of people. And I think most surprising to me was to see how many are uh, supportive of this case who are people who I, I, I guess I would say personally I mean, I know them personally, but who I personally know of enough to consider them to be uh, a 
you know, a decent person uh, and with good intentions uh, who seem to genuinely believe that this case is legally sound and is somehow rooted in constitutional law. And furthermore, they believe this case is winnable and that that outcome is desirable. However, the simple truth is that not a single one of those things is actually true. Now, if you are watching this video and you happen to fall into that camp of people who support Brunson and this case, please, please take the time to watch this video and hear what I have to say with an open mind. Because whatever my opinions are on the case or the individual involved, I am certainly sympathetic to uh, the fundamental driving factors that can lead to this kind of desperate desire for change. Like, we have all spent years watching blatant government corruption grow and multiply at virtually every level. The promise of a limited government of delegated authority often seems more like a fantasy than merely a distant reality. And we have seen our natural individual rights, which governments are established to protect, be so demeaned and undervalued by that very government for so long that most people don't even understand the difference between what is a constitutionally protected natural and individual right or just mere constitutional rights. Which is why I think just about every day we are told about some new law or policy or regulation or executive action that only further deprives us from those rights that the government was created to protect. Furthermore, elections have become meaningless, though not in the way that most people listening to this will likely assume. What I mean is that after every election, no matter who you voted for or how involved in the political process you were between elections, we are all promised hope and change, and yet, regardless of which candidate wins and which party holds the majority, we all know that by the time the next election comes around, our government will be bigger than it was since the last election. And no matter what, that government will be stealing more of your money and spending more of your money than it was. And it will be stealing more money from future generations yet unborn by borrowing against their future productivity and against the treasury who see no qualms with trying to print our way to prosperity, despite the undeniable fact that it's the very printing of these monopoly dollars that is eating out the substance of the money that we have to earn and that they freely take from us. Now, I have no doubt that by the time the next major election happens, we will be fighting more endless wars, with more soldiers killing more innocent people and being killed in turn, so our military will have more bases and more countries than we have now. In short, Everything that should shrink is growing, and everything that should be growing from the protection of our individual rights to our standard of living is shrinking. But these same lessons can and should be applied to the people who are latching on to this case with some kind of sign of hope. Now, I'll be returning to precisely what I mean by that uh, more towards the end of the video, but... Considering the condition we find ourselves in at the moment as a nation, it is understandable why there are many people witnessing all of this and holding out for hope that there is some sort of deus ex machina that will restore the people, that will restore our country to the constitutional federal republic that it was meant to be, 
and who, in desperation, will be prone to cling to whatever appears to promise to provide whatever it is we are personally looking for. Sadly, there are a lot of people out there who will exploit that desperation by filling that desire for hope with false hope and filling that desire for change with empty promises. And unfortunately, the gentleman behind Brunson v. Adams, the case also known as Docket 22-380, uh, which I will be referring to as the Brunson case, uh, he is just such an example of that kind of person. So for today, what we will be doing is I will be covering the full background of this case from his initial civil action in the Utah District Court and his subsequent movement uh, to and through the federal courts. And then finally, we will be going through Brunson's cert petition point by point and breaking down and discussing what little he gets right and everything else that he tends to get very wrong. And finally, uh, at the end of this, I will be uh, offering my opinion on what the outcome of this case is going to be. And so I want to thank everyone again who uh, brought uh, this case to my attention. Uh, and uh, I, yeah, I went through everyone. All right. So yeah, but it's, thank you to everyone who brought this case to my attention. Uh, I'm glad I'm covering. I'm glad you shared with me. Uh, and, and if anyone else has cases uh, that they would like me to discuss at some point coming up on the show, uh, you can always send me an email or leave me a comment below one of the videos. Uh, and I do my best to try and cover topics if uh it's, it's something that I feel I can uh, do justice. So anyways, let's get to uh, this case for today. Let's start with the facts of the case. So this starts with Raylan Brunson, who filed a pro se civil action in Utah State Court against hundreds of members of Congress, against President Joe Biden, Vice President Kamala Harris, and former Vice President Michael Pence. Now, Brunson alleges that before accepting the electoral votes on January 6th of 2021, defendants intentionally refused to investigate evidence that the November 2020 presidential election was fraudulent. Now, Mr. Brunson likened the defendants' conduct to an act of war against the United States Constitution that violated their oath to uphold the Constitution and his right to participate in an honest and fair election. He then advanced claims uh, claims of constitutional tort and promissory estoppel, and he sought almost $3 billion in damages. And he also asked for injunctive relief, including the removal of defendants from office and the reinstatement of Donald Trump as president of the United States. Now, from there, the defendants removed the case to the federal district court and filed a motion to dismiss under the federal rules of civil procedure uh, 12B1, which is a lack of jurisdiction, and rule 12B6, which is failure to state a claim for which relief can be granted. Now, Brunson filed an opposition to the motion to dismiss, and a magistrate judge issued a report and recommendation that the action be dismissed for two independent reasons. Now, the first one was that Mr. Brunson lacked constitutional standing because his claimed injury was not concrete and personal to him, but only the same as any citizen. And second, 
The 11th Amendment's sovereign immunity barred the claims against the defendants who were sued in their official capacity only, and Mr. Brunson failed to identify any statute or other express provision that unequivocally waives that immunity for his claims. Now, while Mr. Brunson did file a timely objection to this recommendation, he argued only that the magistrate judge did not address the arguments in his opposition to the motion to dismiss and thereby deprived him of due process. Now, the district court overruled that objection, concluding that there was no authority for Mr. Brunson's proposition that, as he put it in his case, quote, that a reviewing court must specifically address arguments made in a brief and finding he was afforded procedural due process by receiving notice of the motion to dismiss and having a reasonable opportunity to respond to it, end quote. Now, because Brunson did not assert any objection to the magistrate judge's conclusion that he lacked standing or that the defendants were entitled to sovereign immunity, the district court determined that he had waived any objection to those conclusions. The court then adopted a recommendation in full, dismissed the action without prejudice for lack of jurisdiction, and entered a separate judgment, which was followed by Brunson's appeal to the District Court decision to the U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals for the Tenth Circuit. Now, Raylan Brunson uh, appealed the District Court's dismissal of his action for lack of jurisdiction, uh, exercising jurisdiction under... 28 U.S.C. Section 1291, but the Circuit Court affirmed the District Court's judgment. So this brings us back to the cert petition filed by Brunson. But first, I, I suppose we should probably ask real quick, what exactly is a writ of certiorari? What does it contain and what is its purpose? So this is a writ that is used by an appellate court when the court decides to review a case at its own discretion. It orders a lower court to deliver its records in a given case, and the higher court may review, and this is the process that the Supreme Court uses for each term when they select their discretionary cases that they take on, and an individual seeking review will submit a petition for writ of certiorari. Now, that is usually referred to uh, as a cert petition. Now, if the court agrees to review the case, this is commonly called granting cert, uh, and at that point, uh, the cert petition is passed on to the lower court that heard the case seeking to uh, seeking review to obtain those lower court records. Now, the format and content for a cert petition is outlined in the Supreme Court rules under Part 3, Rule 14, which governs content for a petition of writ of certiorari, now, I have a link to the full set of Supreme Court rules if you would like to read the four pages of details that make up Rule 14, but essentially I've condensed it down to the essentials as follows. So, a petition for a writ of certiorari shall contain in the order indicated, first, a cover page. Second, a question presented for review expressed concisely in relation to the circumstances of the case. Questions should be short and not argumentative or repetitive, the statement of any question presented is deemed to compromise, excuse me, to comprise every subsidiary question therein. Only the questions set out 
in the petition or fairly included therein will be considered by the court. Next, you are to include a list of parties to the proceeding whose judgment is sought to be reviewed. A corporate disclosure state as required by Rule 29.6. And a list of all proceedings in state and federal trial and appellate courts directly related to the case uh, before the court. Next uh, is a concise statement of the basis for jurisdiction in the court. Next is the constitutional provisions, treaties, statutes, ordinances, and regulations involved in the case set out verbatim with appropriate citations. Next is a concise statement of the case setting out the facts material to consideration of the questions presented. And finally, a direct and concise argument amplifying the reason relied on for allowance of the writ according to Rule 10. Now, easily, the most important part of any cert petition uh, is the question presented. Now, Rule 14 is not the court's only guidance on the purpose and scope of a question presented. So if we turn to the precedent set in Yi versus City of Escondido from 1992, uh, the court says that within the certiorari process, the QP serves a distinct function. It allows overburdened justices and their clerks the opportunity to understand the case with one glance of the page, because frequently, the court's first introduction to the case is through the QP. Thus, questions presented, which fail from the outset to illuminate the case and its possible cert worthiness, lose that all-important chance at a favorable first impression. The preeminent guide of social, or, or excuse me, the preeminent guide of Supreme Court practices notes that the question presented is one of the most important pages in the entire petition for a writ of certiorari document. And the late Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy explicitly endorsed this sentiment, uh, even noting that the QP, in his own words, quote, may well be the most important part of an attorney's brief, end quote. And another former justice, this was actually Justice John Paul Stevens, stated that oftentimes, his decision to grant certiorari was made solely upon review of the question presented. So with all that in mind, let's dive into his whole cert petition, starting with the question presented. So his question presented reads, A serious conflict exists between decisions rendered from this court and the lower appeals courts along with constitutional provisions and statutes in deciding whether or not the trial court has jurisdiction to try the merits of this case. This case uncovers a serious national security breach that is unique and is of first impression, and due to the serious nature of this case, it involves the possible removal of a sitting president and vice president of the United States, along with members of the United States Congress, while deeming them unfit from ever holding office under federal, state, county, or local governments found within the United States of America. And at the same time, the trial court also has the authority to be validated by this court to authorize the swearing-in of the legal and rightful heirs for president and vice president of the United States 
And what he means there is that he wants the trial court to declare Donald Trump the winner and just put him in office by judicial fiat. Now back to the question presented. He goes on to say, in addition, there are two doctrines that conflict with each other found in this case affecting every court in this country. These doctrines are known as the doctrines of equitable maxim and the doctrine of the object principle of justice. Equitable maxim created by this court, which the lower court used to dismiss this case, sets in direct violation of this object principle of justice, also partially created by this court and supported by other appeals courts and constitutional provisions. These conflicts call for the supervisory power of this court to resolve these conflicts, which has not, but should be, settled by this court without delay. Now, if you read Rule 14 carefully, and really even if you read it not so carefully, you will look for the required elements and best practices for drafting a question presented, and you will notice that the question presented put forward in Brunson's third petition lacks pretty much every element required and or suggested. Now, these are the elements we just went over a moment ago from Rule 14, where it said everything that should be in a uh, in a question presented. Um, but the thing is, it's not just missing the elements of a question presented, but if we go back to it, uh, it's not just missing the elements of the question presented, but it is missing the very thing itself. Because, again, if you read this uh, carefully or even not so carefully, the fact is, at no point does Brunson's question presented ever present a question. Now, by comparison... I have pulled up uh, another question presented for another case that is being heard by the court this term that also happens to deal with a similar issue of free and fair elections in regard to presidential campaigns. This is a case that we have talked about before several times, uh, and this is Moore versus Harper. So this is the entire question presented page, and I just wanted to pull this up uh, to show you... Uh, in comparison, that uh, this is what a uh, concise question presented should look like. This is what Brunson's looked like. That's what it should look like. The question presented for review in more like they should have expressed concisely uh, in relation to the circumstances of the case, the questions at hand. Now, if we move in closer to more and we actually read the question presented itself, it says whether a state's judicial branch may nullify the regulating governing the regulations governing the manner of holding elections for senators and representatives prescribed by the legislature thereof. The U.S. Constitution, Article 1, Section 4, Clause 1 and replace them with regulations of the state court's own devising based on vague state constitutional provisions, purportedly vesting the state judiciary with power to prescribe whatever rules it deems appropriate to ensure a fair or free election. So when we look at the content of this QP, what we find is an actual question presented for review as opposed to Brunson's manic and repetitive non-question. 
Now, Moore's QP is short and not argumentative or repetitive and comprises every subsidiary question therein. And going back to uh, Brunson's QP, the last two paragraphs of his are very interesting. He starts to talk about these two concepts that he calls the doctrine of equitable maxims and the doctrine of the object principle of government. Now, though here he just mentions them and attempts to give uh, a definition uh, and assign relevance to these two things, but uh, towards the end of his petition, he actually does elaborate on these and really explains, well, not really explains, kind of explains, he thinks he explains what they really are. Uh, but so for now, I just want to briefly take notice of what he had to say about these concepts in his uh, QP and keep these descriptions in mind for when we return to these legal maxims later. So I have uh, highlighted the descriptions for the equitable maxim in green and the object principles of government in yellow to distinguish which one is which when he is talking about them. Now he says that these are legal doctrines made up by the Supreme Court and they conflict with each other, which is simple and straightforward. Now, the one thing he does say that can and should be addressed now is his claim that the lower court dismissed this case based on the equitable maxim of just or the ex, the equitable maxim based on the equitable maxim. Now, this is gibberish and verifiably untrue. And I say it's gibberish because even these few words he uses in this one paragraph already present far more than just a problem. What's the problem? I haven't got a problem. I've got fucking problems. Plural. One away. Like for starters, equitable maxim isn't a single doctrine. It's actually a complex of legal doctrines, canons, maxims, case laws, and statute that don't actually have their start, as he claims, in the Supreme Court. They actually have their start, uh, well, initially in the early Roman Republic civil law system, but what we now recognize as our modern understanding of equitable maxim was not created at all by the Supreme Court. It is one of two wide and encompassing areas of law that exist in virtually all common law systems. Now, many of the numerous maxims, and yes, maxims, plural, are derived directly from ancient English common law charters and liberties, including the Aziz of Clarendon, the Magna Carta, and the provisions of Oxford. And the numerous maxims that developed out of those charters and liberties came from the interpretation by the English courts of chancery, which oversaw equity jurisdiction. It could not possibly be in conflict with the object principle of government, which his other uh, maxim he talks about is the object principle of government. And that is because, uh, as I will be demonstrating uh, completely later in this video, that doesn't exist. Like at all. It is a fabricated phrase 
And not only does his phrase not appear uh, anywhere in the Supreme Court uh, uh, precedents or Supreme Court case law, I actually spent the better part of an entire day searching the Pacer system and then searching LexisNexis and then searching Westlaw and then actually going to a near nearby law library. And then when I found nothing in any of those places, I just did a general internet search. Now, the only place I found anywhere in the world, in any document, in any search engine, anywhere where the phrase doctrine of the object principle of government appears is in this one cert petition and one other petition for rehearing that was also written by Raylan Brunson on his own website, along with about 40 other frivolous lawsuits that he has been filing throughout the years. And what he doesn't understand, or I guess it's possible he does understand but simply doesn't care about, is that despite Brunson's ostensible appearance as a conservative who says his motivation ultimately is to protect the Constitution of the United States, the Supreme Court's power to oversee suits in equity, the very thing that he is challenging, is a constitutionally delegated power under the Cases and Controversies Clause of Article 3, Section 2, Clause 1. It says the judicial power shall extend to all cases in law and equity arising under this Constitution and the laws of the United States. So, since suits in equity are the precise area of law that equitable maxims apply to, what he is saying is that the Supreme Court has no rightful authority to exercise an explicitly designated Article Three judicial power. Now, we will be returning to the Cases and Controversies Clause a little later in this video when we discuss federal questions as well as injunctive relief, but the final issue with his QP that we need to discuss is that part at the end where he says that the lower courts used equitable maxims to dismiss his case. Now, while this claim can be discarded based on the fact that what he has been describing is a completely incorrect interpretation of even the idea of equitable maxims, even if for the sake of argument we grant his definition of equitable maxim as somehow being uh, somehow proper in its interpretation, this is still verifiably wrong. It could not have been the doctrine by which the court settled his case in the lower courts because we know how they settled his case in the lower courts. They clearly said, Defendants removed the case from federal district court and filed a motion to dismiss under the federal rules of civil procedure, uh, Rule 12b1, which is a lack of jurisdiction, and Rule 12b6, which is failure to state a claim for which relief can be granted. And the motion, that, that was the reason that they requested the motion for dismiss. Now, the motion was granted on the same grounds of procedural law that defense was raised under. The circuit court's order and judgment stated, Mr. Brunson lacked constitutional standing because his claim injury was not concrete and personal to him, but only the same as any citizen. And 11th Amendment sovereign immunity, 
barred the claims against the defendants who were sued in their official capacity, and Mr. Brunson failed to identify any statute or other express provision that unequivocally waives that immunity for his claims. Hey guys, uh, it is Bob here. Uh, this is Editing Bob checking in uh, because I, at this point we're about halfway through the video that I want to present. Uh, and this makes a natural stopping point. So what I am going to do is I am just going to cut it off here. Uh, and then I'm going to post the next part of the video uh, the very next day. So uh, this is going to cut off very suddenly. Just want you guys to know what was coming. Uh, so I, I hope you enjoyed the video. Uh, hit the thumbs up button if you liked it. Hit the thumbs down button if you didn't like it. Uh, as always, of course, leave me a comment. Let me know what you think. If you have any questions about this case or any uh, statements about my take on the case, I would always, always love to hear those down in the comments section below. Uh, and, of course, subscribe to the channel so you always know when my newest episodes are going to drop. Uh, if you would do all those things that help me feed Al Gore's rhythm, I would very much appreciate it. So, uh, until tomorrow, this is Bob uh, for Legalese signing off. Uh, as always, Cartago de Lenda Est.